Good evening, and welcome to uh, tonight's reading, which is being put on by the Writers Guild of Alberta. My name is David Martin, and I'll be your host. The WGA uh, hosts uh, monthly events to uh, give people a chance to get away from their writing desks and socialize with other writers, talk about what's happening in the book world, and learn more about the Writers Guild of Alberta. <clears throat> oh, we're gonna we're gonna start one more time. Welcome to tonight's reading, which is uh, put on by the Writers Guild of Alberta. My name is David Martin, and I'm pleased to be your host for this evening. Uh, the WGA hosts monthly events to give uh, people a chance to get away from their writing desk and socialize with other writers, talk about what's happening in the book world, and learn more about the Writers Guild of Alberta. Before we begin, I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that we are coming to you from the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Igani, and Kainai First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nation. The City of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Our featured writer this evening is Pamela Medland. Pamela was born and raised in Vancouver, but now spends most of her time in Calgary. Her work has been published in literary journals such as the Dalhousie Review, Freefall Magazine, Grain, The Prairie Journal, Spadina Literary Review, and Room. As well, work is forthcoming in Prairie Fire and Literary Heist. You can also find Medlin's work in anthologies such as YYC Pop, Poetic Portraits of People, and the forthcoming Wondershift, the Alexander Writer Center 40th Anniversary Anthology. Medlin's poetry has been shortlisted in contests sponsored by Geist and Freefall Magazine, and her poem Shooting Stars was nominated for a 2019 Pushcart Prize. Echo of Ash, published by Vivian Hansen's Passwords Enterprise, is Medlin's debut poetry collection. In this work, she shares the pain and trauma of the sudden loss of Murray, her best friend and partner of 38 years. When not reading or writing poetry, Medlin serves as the director of the Airdrie Public Library, and she has two grown children and a bobtailed cat. Uh, after Pam's reading, I'll have a few questions for her. And uh, if, if people watching on the live stream have some questions, you can enter that into the uh, YouTube chat and uh, I will pass them along to, to Pamela. So I'm gonna turn it over to you, Pam Medlander. Great, thank you, David. And thanks to the Writers Guild of Alberta for this opportunity to read from my work online. Um, I will do my best to keep that bobtailed cat out of the screen. <laughs> so I wanna say that many people have supported me along the way in writing this book, but the person that I have to thank first is my publisher, Vivian Hansen, who was also my uh, editor and mentor through the almost five years that it took to uh, complete these poems and pull them together into this debut collection. So as David has said, I lost my husband of 38 years when I when he was only 63. Uh, we had been together since I was a teenager. So it was a, a momentous occasion in my life. I have written poetry since I was a child, but there were large gaps in the years when I was raising a family and working full time. One, um, probably maybe the only good thing 
that came out of the loss of my husband was more time and space in my life to, to return to my poetry. And um, it, I, I don't only write about loss and grief, but I did, of course, write a lot of poems during the four or five years that I was uh, in the early stages of the grief process. And this manuscript is pulling together uh, what I think are the, the most representative and best of that collection. So the, the first section is probably the darkest section of the book. It's called Drowning. And tonight I want to begin by sharing with you three poems from the beginning of the book. I claim the death watch, widow's last right and duty. Your shroud deceives me, lifting shadowless in wind, like breath on moonless night. This is called No Apology to the Dead. I didn't promise to be on time, make appointments, eat at regular intervals. I didn't say I'd pay the mortgage, keep my job, feed the cat. Why should I refile the funeral photos in their sleeves, share your organs and your suits with those in need, plant a tree? Instead, I eat your ashes, wear your underwear to bed. And if I, old woman, shave my head or take a shyster to my bed, there's comfort in shady propositions fished from the swirling waters of the sticks. In the fifth dimension, you inhabit my body, blood, breath, bone marrow, dancing at the point of synapse sunk deep in my gray matter. You play in my cuticles, stoke my follicles, your dust destroys time. There is no past or future, only a limitless present that stretches in all directions, a five-dimensional reality where all senses are aroused. I walk in a shiver of desire for your tongue-on-tongue -tongue kiss, embraced by the warmth of your smell, enthralled by the gray of your eyes. Singing in my bones, I rub the grit of your ash, lick the tip of my finger, taste the heat of those first glances, hear the pant of first lovemaking, worry again the last whispered goodbye. The Second section of the book is called surfacing. And in the first uh, part of a grief, there's, there's kind of a numbness and a shock um, and a horror. And then you start to come out of it. Not, you don't get over it. You just start to get a little bit um, more with it in terms of what you can uh, recognize going on around you. This poem is called The Year of the Dead. Some cultures celebrate the turning year 
with feasts and song, drumming goodbye to the dead, tap dancing to the bony rattle of death. But I, not believing in the soul, dread the turning year, the time when friends and family say, move on. As months pass, you come nearer to me. In that imaginary world in which we live, you smile, tell me I'm getting closer to your age. You're always smiling, teasing me for my tears, saying things like, come, walk with me on the sand, see the hailstorm or the lightning, pointing out things around me I no longer notice, blanketed as I am in sorrow. Our world is brighter now that you are dead. Nothing much happens here. Moon casts less shadow than I walk in daily. In this phantom land, white hairs run. Wind howls just as it did a year ago when we hiked bluffs hunting for prairie crocus in an early spring. This year, winter is long. The crocus late. Your ashes sit by my fire in a box. When I think of summer, it's of blinding heat, a final burning that melts your eyes, curls your lip. That terrible first anniversary is coming. The gap between us narrows. You will stay young. When I catch up, there will be a final reckoning, long past when friends and family expect grief to end. They won't be part of the decision I'll make then. It will be you, that image of your younger self that counsels me, that answers why stay in a world where I age past your youthful vitality, that says yes to the living or no, to the dead, or bids me join you in a somber dance down that dark path you took before me. This poem uh, was an award-winning poem from Wax Poetry and Art, which is an online uh, poetry magazine or site. It's called Ice in August. Frost stiffens late summer, brittles pale arms of poplar and larch. It's coming, the dead season. I feel its chill fingers on my curled toes. Even the hanging gardens on Stephen Avenue lose their luster in the mall's stale air. I sort patio plants into living and frosted. Select a few unlucky stars to choke through the winter solstice in my darkened rooms. Last fall, I chanced box outside, remembering London in March. But by December, I plucked the dry bush, frozen like the gold grass of the foothills. He died in June amidst geranium blossoms, your funereal bouquets dull against the bright pink cheer of fall cuttings coaxed through a long winter. Now, Ice blows again in August, 
and I must sort alone the living from the dead, no longer certain who's been touched by frost. Okay, this one is called An Unanswerable Separation, and it's a poem in which I'm trying to capture just that sort of day-to-day -day endless ongoing emptiness and um, aloneness that one feels when you lose somebody really important to you. I listen to my neighbors sink, sing her, her hair down the drain, drum my fingers to Mr. Bartok's computer as it jingles a virtual presence. Upstairs, the med beds argue in Ukrainian. I miss argument here where silence measures our unanswerable separation. All day long, Leone listens to the sounds of women rising late, isolated shuffles on commercial grade carpet. When I return, he meows in answer to the click of my key in the lock. When this was our apartment, we heard only ourselves. Now, small signals from others drip into the void, echo a yodel that won't stop. When this was our life, our intersection made something bigger. Now, I shrink into your absence. Find I am not enough. Find I am alone in my insufficiency. I listen to my neighbor's spin cycle, spit and throb, toss to Jack Toby's Saturday night music. Down the hall, Trisha Jeffrey's Netflix screams and smashes. And the last poem in this midsection that I'll read to you tonight is called, I open my window and release a hair. Is it a socially aggressive act to discard the dust and peelings of my existence into the common thoroughfare like an American tossing a candy wrapper on the freeway, a Brit, a crisp packet in the canal, a dead cat in the Seine. I pick lint off my shirt, cringe as I toss it to the wind, afraid since you've left to make even so small a mark upon the world, so mild an utterance of scorn. You were so sure of right and wrong. I can't bring myself to toss your ashes. They sit heavy in a box by the fire, tempting, accusatory, sullen. You want to be the small molecules an ant dusts from its feelers. Everywhere, the bereaved release their loved ones' ashes into rivers, lakes, drinking water. We tipped Ron into the ocean, his essence spreading behind the boat like a fungal bloom, a watery Milky Way. Dan took small tins of you, spread them on new fallen snow. He said it was black and gritty, that he was sorry he had littered the slopes so close to the lodge where the skiers would think someone had dumped an ashtray, not a father.
So the last uh, section of the book is called Survival. And the poems here are both backward and forward looking. Uh, there is no recovery or even reconciliation in this collection, but I hope that the poems express um, an understanding that survival and moving forward uh, depends on acceptance. So the first one that I will read to you is called Afterlife. Three years after your memorial, I find a draft you've never sent. It says, I'm hungry and tired. It says, I love you. When are you coming home, it asks. I send it to myself. My inbox says it comes from you. I'm supposed to be erasing your digital presence, but here you are sending me messages that say, I love you. I'm annoyed you're so demanding. I'm angry you're so late. It's the only written statement that you love me. Does it count that I sent it to myself? This poem is called Canadian Shield and my husband Murray grew up in a small town, Tweed, Ontario um, on the Canadian Shield. And he was from uh, a French Canadian background. Canadian Shield. Here's that picture of you in a press back chair, smiling. You're three, Pepe is 83, unsmiling. He sits on a sprung green chair, tall on a damask pony, riding coiled springs. He can't sit still and neither can you. You grip the wood reins of the dining chair, ride beside him on its four straight legs, galloping, galloping. Pepe lives in the kitchen, holds his hands in his lap. They twist, dig, search for a scythe, a hoe, plow the back lot in his mind. You will not climb into his lap to whisper your fear. His eyes are gray, but when he looks at you, sky peeks through. You died lying down, but I swear I'll die riding, searching for you in the scrub of an old shield concession. This is the last poem in the book, um, but I wanted to, to read one more after this one, which is the title, title poem of the collection. This short ending poem is called Burning Bush. This is the richness of desert or wilderness, the long pause in our daily need, when not having overwhelms desire, and the beauty of nothing in the splendor of a slow nightfall moves us to silence. And I'll, I'll leave this last poem with you. It's as I said, it's the title poem of the book. It's called Echo of Ash. And I'm grateful to Freefall Magazine for publishing it in their 2019 um, issue. Echo of Ash. 
I hold your box of ashes to my ear. Listen for sounds of us on a weekend. Eggs frying, kettle boiling, slap of stick in garage, reverberation of puck on wall, your voice reading a story. In the days before furnaces were so proficient, when bodies were burnt on headlands and beaches, it might have been a finger bone or a tooth someone listened to. I hold your box of ashes to my ear and hear the sound clouds make when they are making snow. A quiet, endless becoming. So um, I'm very thankful for everyone for coming tonight and, and listening. Uh, before I turn it back over to David, though, um, I would like to acknowledge some of the many people who helped and supported me um, through this project. These include Yvonne Blomer, Wayman Chan, Lorna Crozier, and the Honeymoon Bay Retreat Circle, Lori Fuhrer and the Alexander Writer Center Poetry Cafe, uh, Richard Harrison, and the Thursday Night Group, Leonor Enrique, Josephine Murray, Joan Chillington, my grief support group, um, and my family, especially my children, Emily and Daniel. And I'm also grateful to Shelf Life Books for launching my debut collection in July. And um, I encourage everyone to go and order a copy of the book, help support small local presses and independent bookstores. So thank you. Thanks so much, Pam. And I was going to uh, remind people and mention to them that they can they can contact Shelf Life Books um, to to order a copy or pop by and grab a copy there. <clears throat> That's where I got my copy a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're getting some nice comments coming through. <clears throat> um, but, be but before we get to those comments, I thought maybe I would ask you some questions. We could have just a little bit of a discussion about your poems and your your collection. Um, I had made some notes, things that, that struck me about the poems, and um, I think from those notes I tried to come up with a question or two. Um, so my, my first thought was <clears throat> that the collection, it's structured in, in three sections. You, you mentioned the, the titles Drowning, Surfacing, and Survival. And to me that seems to suggest a little bit of a, a linear narrative as far as thinking and meditating on a loved one who's passed. Uh, but I also noticed that there's this countercurrent in the book of imagery and memories uh, that keeps returning in, in kind of a cyclical manner and suggesting that there's no simple linear path through the grieving process, um, that places and images will continue to suggest the person um, or a memory will simply appear in your mind so my, my question for you was, um, how consciously were you aware of that tension between the linear and the cyclical structure in your collection? And did that kind of influence how you were thinking about ordering the poems in your book? Thank you for that question. It's not a simple answer. I, I had to uh, structure the poems, of course, in some way. And I'm very much cognizant that when you go through um, 
a deep loss, especially with somebody that, that you have lived most of your life with, it's not really a linear process. You don't go from, you know, loss, grief, <laughs> recovery. I don't know if anybody ever recovers. I can only speak for myself. And for those that uh, I shared some of this process with in, in my grief group, for example, I think we're all of that group, we're all convinced you don't recover. You just somehow come to some kind of acceptance. If you're lucky, I mean, some people get stuck forever in that deep grief, but it's that understanding that death, I, I don't know, everybody comes to their own understanding, but for me, it's understanding that death is part of the cycle of life. And I do, I do see that as a cycle. Um, just, just, you know, we're born, we live and we die just as the seasons <laughs> keep coming through this cycle. So uh, maybe that is influencing what you're seeing as a cyclical uh, drive in, in the book. I was definitely not thinking of it as a narrative, beginning, middle, and an end. And so, because I don't think that's what the grieving process was for me. And so that, that is a challenge when you're writing a book because as readers, we're really plugged in to narrative with, with that, with that uh, linear progression. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. But... Oh, that's great. And that, I think that kind of addresses um, what I was thinking about when I was reading the poems. Uh, and it reminds me of, of you know, personal experiences that I've, that I've had that, you know, that memories can suddenly uh, appear um, triggered by, by who knows what. I think um, that something that stuck with me from Marcel Proust was the idea that the most pure form of memory are the ones that show up um, almost unbidden or by accident and that you can't kind of force memories that, that you almost have to be receptive and just kind of waiting for them to, to arrive. And I, I kind of like that idea that sometimes you will just have these memories triggered of, of the person perhaps um, in, in kind of a, a particular setting or, or just some uh, mnemonic device that seems to bring that person back to you. Um, my, my second question was uh, thinking about the, um, the poetic techniques that you're using in the poems. Um, one that, that really stood out to me was your use of metaphor. Um, so I, was, I started making a bit of a list as I was reading things like um, you talked about, you mentioned the pit vipers. Uh, you have this idea of combing grief. Uh, there's a river of grief. You mentioned being the third thumb of the deceased um, or the one who has passed away being being like a phantom limb. Um, and so I was thinking about your the, your use of metaphor. And to me, it seems like they're, they're strategies to render that abstract emotion into something that is very viscerally, viscer, viscerally concrete. So my question is, is how important is metaphor for you in your poetic process? Uh, is it something that you think about directly or does it just kind of appear more organically? Um, what, you, yeah, how would you respond to that? Um, I don't think about it consciously. I always worry that the metaphors are cliches, <laughs> like most poets probably. Um, 
there's a tendency, I think, to talk about grief metaphorically um, and death metaphorically. And I'm really not sure whether that has to do with the emotional psychological process, whether it comes out of the writing, the creative process, um, or whether it might be intertextual because death is a fact of life. It's all around us. It's been a central topic in literature uh, and, and philosophy and in living for as long as we've been on the earth. And it's talked about all over literature. So I think there might be sort of an unconscious kind of intertextuality thing that goes on, where as a writer, um, consciously or not, you might use a metaphor that resonates through something else that you have read or, or experienced as, as a piece of art. But personally, um, no, I'm not thinking, okay, what metaphor can I use here? It's just coming, it is coming out of my writing, just my um, subconscious creative process, I think. And that's always interesting um, to me as well, to talk to poets about how um, actively they're kind of thinking about imagery and some of these techniques, or whether they're finding that just in kind of an organic way, that, that this is what shows up in the poem. Um, that's, that's always really fascinating to me to, to, uh, to learn about uh, poetic practice that people are, are, are using. I, I will just say that uh, one thing that is very important to me in my practice is image. Um, and so I definitely am trying to, um, you know, anchor the poem through the use of concrete imagery for sure. And th that actually um, connects to a question I was thinking about. I, I had noticed um, certain kind of sets of imagery that that seemed to run through the collection, uh, particularly natural images such as birds and rivers, um, geological images. And uh, my yeah, my question was um, was this kind of a unified pool of imagery that you were drawing from? Uh, deliberately, or again, or was it was it a bit more of an unconscious uh, process for you? Uh, again, it, it, it's unconscious. I'm I'm slightly uncomfortable with the word unconscious because it almost suggests like it's something that um, is completely disconnected with an objective poetic practice. Um, I think those pools, pool that, that many poets have this pool of imagery that they um, draw from. In my case, I'm uh, nature imagery is really big in my poems, and so is geological imagery. That's interesting that you say that. And I'm not sure whether that will be the case forever. I I am working on a couple of projects. One one was um, based on the coast and used a lot of nature imagery, nature, poems. Uh, I was dealing with environmental issues. And I have another project that is very interested in the a geologic, geological imagery, especially uh, how the organic is integrated into the inorganic um, in geology. So 
those are kind of percolating away in my mind while I'm writing with these uh, on these other projects. And so I think they are coming into these poems. Um, but I'm, I, I don't I don't know if it'll be the same always, you know, right. but yeah, I think and I think as a reader, I've been thinking about geology and writing about that a little bit. So I'm, I'm possibly sort of attuned to certain things like that. And then when I'm reading your poems, they're, they're sort of jumping out for me a little bit. Um, uh, my next question was, um, uh, I, I was struck by that idea of, of trying to reconcile the increasing distance between um, the loved one and, and the ever moving present. Um, I had this sense that there was a, a shock in how the world continues on after such a devastating rupture. Uh, and yet it does go on. Um, I, I like the poems where you, you want to catch your husband up about the news about Tom Wayman and John Prine. Um, but you're also wondering about, is this a world in which he would still fit? So perhaps you could speak a little bit about this sense of increasing distance between the deceased and the living and, and how we kind of um, relate that to our understanding of grief. Well, I'm not sure if it's the case for everybody, but it, it, it is the case for me throughout my life that I've always felt a sort of discomfort and disjunction between living in my head and living in the world and trying to reconcile those things. Um, and it just becomes accentuated with a loss like this because uh, it, there, there are, you know, there's this whole horde of memories. There is also the way in which your lived life makes you who you are and becomes very um, integral to your everyday existence. And there are the new thoughts, the ongoing contemplation that you engage in after a loss like this and you're often still interacting with the person that has died and so while that's going on unless you unless you're really disconnected completely with reality you're very aware that the world objective world outside that consciousness continues that change is ever present and that that outer world that you experience with the lost one um is gone just just as that lost person is gone so has that world gone and so that's that's a kind of um what's the word it's the thinking, big thing that i have trouble getting my head around the big metaphysical question right i'm thinking of the, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the dissonance between um those those memories but then also the the continuing distance as, as you move forward in time. Um, yeah. and I was struck, uh, this just occurred to me while you were reading uh, this evening, uh, maybe this, this changes my thinking of it a little bit. You talked about sort of moving towards the age at which he passed away and sort of almost kind of approaching that and getting closer. And that's maybe another way to kind of think about this that would, that would be in a slightly different manner than I had had sort of set forth in my in my question. Um, we've just got time for a little bit more, and I do want to make, get some comments from the uh, um, from our our, our viewers. Um, 
this is this is my last main question Re regarding poetic creation i noticed that you are engaging with a number of other poets and you're responding to their work uh, such as milton acorn avon boland fernando pessoa and a number of poets that you sampled in your cento at the end of the book so i was wondering if you could briefly talk about how uh, your poetic practice and how you engage with the work of other writers and maybe how you find that inspiration um, from from other from other works of literature mm -hmm. sure yeah like most poets i'm always reading other poets and um they they sort of kind of sink into your own uh set you know of of images and techniques etc and i always have this horror that something will sneak in somebody else's words or structure or thought will sneak or image will sneak into my poem and not be acknowledged um so i try very hard not to do that one poem in here uh where i credit milton acorn i actually wrote that poem i hadn't read milton acorn for many years and i wrote it not really thinking of milton acorn at all and then i happened to reread uh i shout love I, I believe is the name of his poem and realized oh my gosh like the the structure is it's the same structure <laughs> so if somebody reads my poem reads his poem you know they're gonna think i'm copying them have to credit him uh now whether that was just deep in my memory and was coming out i'm i'm not sure but they they operate a little bit differently there i am in a, a group with um two other poets and we do read other poets and then we write afterwards and sometimes we always credit if we feel that they that something about the poet that we've read has had a profound impact on the poem that we write and that could be the use of a sentence it could be borrowing of an image or just a tone could be the structure of the poem so i have a, a couple of poems in this collection that came out of that process and i just need to credit you know where, where credit is due yeah that's great i think i think a lot of poets find that they'll They'll find some inspiration in an image or a structure in another poet and then that sends them off on their own on their own work so that's that's really fascinating that you're you're talking about that process uh just a few um uh questions or mo mostly comments there's some nice comments coming through um um cat cameron writes that she likes the expression uh, anchor the poem through concrete imagery that you're looking for those um, things for the reader to really hold on to. And I, I enjoy that as well. Um, Susan Alexander writes uh, that this is very powerful, very powerful grief work. And um, Loft 112 uh, notes, your ability to capture grief through daily routine is astounding. And I think that's, uh, I was at your earlier launch through Shelf Life Books that you did with Vivian Hansen. And there's a, there's a lot of um connection that people can make with your poems that maybe they've gone through similar uh, situations and the, the work really does resonate with a lot of people great to hear thank you and i'll comment that i can't see who's attending but thank you everybody for your for your comments i appreciate it and there's uh there was a nice comment from uh lori fuhrer uh she mentioned that she uh happened to drop off a copy of your book to Vivian today without knowing that Vivian had actually published your book. Uh, <laughs> she just thought that, that Vivian would, would enjoy it. And then Vivian writes that, and she did, <laughs> that she would love it. Um, Thanks, Lori. And uh, um, Lori also says, yeah, that uh, 
it's outstanding work from a wonderful person. And you you had worked with her at the Alexander Writer Center um, yeah. as you were kind of crafting this manuscript, I understand. Yes, and I have to say when I returned to poetry um, after the loss of my husband, the Alexander Writer Center and Lori's um, group, the Poetry Cafe, uh, it was a lifesaver for me. And it really uh, was important uh, for me personally in, um, you know, just triggering my return to poetry. So I really owe them, uh, Lori and her group, a great debt and the Alexander Writers Center. Yeah, that's always really great to hear about the um, connections that writers make um, and kind of finding that community, which seems to be a way to kind of spark inspiration and, and, and get those artistic projects going. Uh, I, th I think that's, that's it for us. Those are all the questions that I had. I want to thank uh, the Writers Guild of Alberta for hosting this event and, and putting it on and Pam for sharing your poetry. Uh, this has been a really nice project for me to, to do a bit of a deep dive and dig into your work uh, and, and really think about some some questions that I was coming up with. So I, I appreciate that. And uh, thanks to all the people who were watching and your questions and comments. That was really great. And uh, it, this will be available so that people who missed it this evening can, can stream it another night. And uh, I think that'll do it from us. Thanks so much. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.